hate me, don't you? You hate me so much you're scared shitless. <laughs> See, a man tears the wings off a bird and he hates it because it can't fly. And then it scares him because he doesn't know what it's good for. that celebrates all movies from sublime to the suspicious. As always, I'm Lindsay Wilkins, and this week we are going to the Woodlands Dark where the days are bewitched. This is a very special episode because uh, we are taking our double from the amazing Severin All Haunts Arouse box set. Um, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be very folk horror and I love folk horror. Um, and the, today's double from the set is going to be 1991's Claire Cut and 1989's Siglia. And here with me is the wonderful Nathan Jones of the Nathan Jones YouTube channel. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I am really well. Thank you so much for coming on and saying yes to this idea. I even, I think I suggested it even before I got my, um, my, my set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were talking about this a little bit before it was even in our grasps. Yes. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I think, I don't think it even been, I think it had just like said, oh, it's coming. And it was coming from very far away in, in America. And I'm like going, can we do an, ep I would love to do an episode th on this. I don't even have the set yet, but I think it's going to be an awesome set. I'd love to do a double from it. And you were like, yes. And I'm like, this is amazing. On your channel, you've already done three amazing episodes going through the whole entire set and all the entire special features, which I'm just so impressed with because I haven't even, I've only scraped the surface of a lot of the special features. And when you look at how packed this set is, it's, it's, it's weighty. It's a weighty set, isn't it? It's absolutely, it's, there's so much going on in <laughs> that set. I mean, I actually just recorded a fourth video, which oh. I'm at yeah. yeah, I know, because uh, I did the, the last three discs, which are all CDs, Yes, uh, one on one of the documentaries we'll talk about today, mm -hmm. and the um, the white people um, uh, read by, mm. I, I have it off, off the top of my head right here, um, it's read by, here we go, it is read by Linda Hayden from, mm. um, you know, the uh, Blood on Satan's Claw mm. and actor. And yeah, it was, uh, I, I did that. And I also read all of the supplements on the books. So I read all the essays. So I, I kind of deep dived into that. But on top of that, the set is just immense. Mm. And it's just too much, honestly. It really is. Um, I personally love box sets, mainly because you get a whole bunch of stuff and it's always like a, just a cool thing to unwrap. Um, but also because it feels like this kind of film education in a set, like you're getting like a whole bunch of things. Like I love the indicator, um, Noir sets and things like the um, Marlene the Dietrich and the Mae West just because you're getting this kind of um, class and kind of a film history and this one is the ultimate film history um, 
because it's taking this very kind of cerebral, uh, very loose genre, I guess, in horror, and then just kind of expanding it out even more. How much of a folk um, horror fan were you even before Severin announced this? Um, I would say a pretty strong one, but not strong enough. It's actually very funny because when this was announced, I was actually a little bit hesitant towards it because of a, the recent uh, release from them was the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee from mm. Severin, which I had bought and I liked some of the films in it, but I didn't like a lot of it. I was yeah. like, well, I dressed this up and I, I was a little bit um, you know, downtrodden. And I remember that very day that this got announced, I was with my, uh, my roommate at the time, uh, who is one of my best friends and also loves movies like myself. And I was mentioning this set just got announced and I've been a massive fan of Robert Eggers re of recent work um, and some other uh, films like The Wicker Man, of course, mm. and some, you know, just uh, some basic uh, folk horror that uh, most people know about. Yeah. And then I was just like, I, I don't know about this set, but I hadn't seen the trailer or anything. And I and my friends like, well, just push watch the trailer and like, then we can talk. And then I watched the trailer and I was blown away. Uh, just by the presentation of this and I knew I was I was I was very uh, for an hour or two thinking like should I buy it should I buy it and I kept <laughs> bugging my roommate about it and and he's like just just buy it I know you're gonna do it because you have an easy trigger finger anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> I know that feeling <laughs> yes um, and I still do <laughs> yeah. um I don't know if I would have completely called myself a folk horror fan even though I love folk horror. I didn't exactly know what the term was. I mean, The Wicker Man is one of my favorite movies just in general. I love, yeah, Robert Edgar's The Witch and even what he did with The Lighthouse. And I think, and then uh, I just kept watching these more movies like Blood on Slate and Satan's Claw, Witch Hammer, which I'd already seen before, um, and uh, Witchfinder General and kind of going, no, I kind of like this style of even something like The Ritual when like this mm -hmm, kind yeah. of wooey kind of um like i love how the when we get into the documentary how it kind of mentions rawhead rex um because that's still very much part of that tradition even though that movie is goofy as all anything but it's yeah so i just sort of started realizing that's kind of the horror i gravitated towards um so when it was sort of more the documentary first that i heard about and then once i got excited about that watched it i went then they said oh by the way there is this very large set that you can get and i went okay, just hold off. It's very expensive. You spent a lot of money already. And then I saw there was four Australian movies on it. Um, Celia, uh, Alison's oh, birthday, okay. dreaming. And I cannot remember the other one now. Could I yes. Could I yeah. And I'm like, well, as my patriotic duty, because sometimes in Australia, it's very hard to get your hands on these Australian, this kind of exploitation, um, which I kind of fits into, but kind of not. Um, so I need as my duty to actually get these so I can, you know, these movies are definitely in the country. And um, I did. And I loved it. Like, I mean, I love the documentary. I am going to butcher her name wrong. The documentary, um, Woodland's Kayla's Dark. Genie. Yes, Kayla uh, Janice. Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched. Folk horror is based upon the juxtaposition of the prosaic and the uncanny. It's strange things found in fields, lights flickering in dark woods, 
the darkness in children's play, being lost in ancient landscapes. The devil having a cup of tea with you. The power of ritual and the power of collective storytelling. Ancient wisdoms, if you like, that have been long repressed and forgotten, rise up again very often to the consternation of complacent modern man. I was lucky enough to see this uh, through the Melbourne International Film Festival. It was uh, meant to happen, but then it got cancelled due to COVID, and only a selection of the films were streaming on their platform, but this was one of them. So I was lucky enough to be able to watch this on a Sunday morning, and just every single time they delved into a new subject, a new country, a new anything on this movie, I just got so excited about, oh, okay, I need to actually see all these movies. <laughs> it is it is a almost, uh, I like to kind of put it in, in the in this term kind of where it's it's like the first book of the Bible, it's Genesis, but the opposite, obviously, because it's folklore, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, just names and numbers and here's a bunch of here's a fire hydrant of things you need to go look up and reference works and uh, it's but it's wonderful because they they they, they put it out um, so uh, beautifully and it all makes sense in the context yes. of when yeah. they're putting it out and I think they you know this is a, an immense documentary uh, but yeah this this was a this was an immense uh, amount of work and there's still so much more to be talked about. I, I honestly kind of wish there was a part two. <laughs> Me too, because what I love about it is they kind of let the films, what she, what Kaylee does is she kind of lets the films um, dictate what folk horror is, not the other way around. It kind of feels like, okay, so if we start with the premise that it's Wicker Man, Blood on Satan's Claw, and um, uh, which kind of general, general, if those are kind of your basis of what folk horror is, how does the rest of the world interpret that? And then you get this kind of really, it just broadens it out so far. And even to the point where you get a folk horror expert saying, it's really hard being a folk horror expert, expert because since it's folk horror and um, legend, it changes constantly because the movies and literature and everything else will just expand on this idea. So there's no kind of um, actual kind of rule of thumb. Suddenly something will become part of folk horror when it never was because someone put it in a movie. And I love the idea of the approach to that yeah that's what's so interesting about this box set but also folk horror in general because like you said with those three movies alone mm. there's no way that that can that could start off the genre per se mm. especially more so with maybe the uk yeah but um there is so much going on in the world because all these folk horror is like it's all cultural context right yes. all of these um, these places all have different uh, pieces of, of land and peoples that are there and present uh, within these stories. And I think mm. it's really interesting thinking about the definition of folk horror because there's really not a really great one. But I, I know that at the very beginning of this documentary, there was so many film experts just listing off the way they interpret it. And I love that juxtaposition of all of the people kind of just coming together with different images and then their really wordy uh, definitions of what they thought folk horror was, at least how it's continuously, you know, it's fluid, right? It's very fluid. It, it always will um, change depending on how someone interprets it. Um, I think bringing it back to people sort of knowing what folk horror was in a more of a modern context it was definitely the witch or the vivich um that kind of brought it back a little bit because um when that movie came out people were like oh yeah this kind of old worldy witchy witches are back and it's very serious and very earthy which is a lot of 
I've always sort of seen folk horror as very a bunch of an earthy genre, especially when you're constantly trying to cover something up that does not want to be covered up, which is very much about what the two movies we're going to be talking about is. And um, watching the, I managed to watch the documentary again because it's very long, and you're just like even now I'm just still writing down movies like, oh yeah, I forgot about this one. Oh yeah, there's a whole series of Japanese movies about cats <laughs> that I need to try and track yeah, down. Yeah, I've seen all those those cat movies are they're great. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I'm just like I need I need those movies in my life. I know there's only one that I've got. And I'm like. But can we get all of them now, please? Thank you. Um, and yeah, how each country interprets their own kind of thing. Um, but I sort of noticed, even though I realized this, one of the movies we're talking about is very much about masculinity and the different types. And a lot of the movies were made by men. But folk horror is kind of feels like the more feminine horror genre um, because it is about old world religion, paganism, witches, um, Mother Earth. All about these Gaia, things. The Titans, yeah. Yeah, and um, all about um, trying to suppress that and what happens when you do, especially with something like Witch Hammer and V, I think, which I love. Is it no Vi? Uh, but <laughs> no, I'm going to be saying. butchering a lot of names. <laughs> a lot of it is Eastern European, and I'm not going to do well with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's. I was just like going. It feels very punk and very feminine, and I'm just like, oh, I love this. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, even with things like going back to like the witch i know hmm. this will pop up a few times but yes. that, that is a very feminine you know driven film of course you know with our main protagonist hmm. of course going through her journey <laughs> to yeah. where she gets to at the end right yeah um yeah. but no spoilers for that if anyone's not seen that of course well, people need to see that movie I, I did have a friend who goes actually if you look at it one way it's a really happy ending and i went yeah mm -hmm. kind of is actually if you look at it from a very specific perspective it's like Oh, that's a happy ending, which you will have to watch the movie to find out. But um, yeah, it, it was quite, <laughs> there were a lot of chaos happens, but it is a very satisfying ending. <laughs> I think it's the same with like a most, most of these films. I mean, they're horrifying, but yes. a lot of these are, you know, it's, it's freeing for our, our characters, even if something horrifying comes up. Yeah. And I think you know, it really just, like you were saying, kind of, you know, showcases that power that is, been kind of as societies have you know popped up and populated going back to that nat natural state um uh, where women especially the mothers uh had a lot more strength and power yes. because obviously the continuation of you know the society would be from them and mm. so I, I love i loved how a lot of these films depending on how you interpret it or mm. how you watch it these aren't horror movies necessarily all the no time. A lot of them weren't, and it was kind of surprising because I've been so much in the thing of folk horror, which if you watch, again, the big three I keep mentioning, they're absolutely horror movies. Um, they are very dark, very kind of thing, but they are undeniably going for horror. And then you watch a lot of them, especially the two that we're um, uh, talking about, they are horror, but they're not... It's hidden under, it's hidden. Like the actual horror of the movie is actually kind of hidden and you're more kind of playing with these drama elements or thriller elements um, as well. And that's kind of what I found really fascinating. It's, folk horror is so kind of, as we said, fluid and mechanical that it's not just, it's playing with so many other genres in it that it's kind of, um, you're watching this, especially Celia going, this isn't a horror movie. Oh wait, yes, now it is. Yes, I, I, I absolutely see that. <laughs> 
yeah, it just keeps popping in and out. You're like, oh, there, oh, nope, we're good now. And uh, okay, now yeah. we're going there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great genre. Uh, and I, I'm glad that it's flourishing now. I mean, yeah. now more than ever, it's, it's almost taken a comeback, even though this, this box set covers all the way films going all the way back to, I think the 60s is the oldest one, the Norwegian film, Lake yes. of the Dead. Lake of the Dead, yes. Um, watching that, it was kind of cool when you're watching a European movie from the 60s to realize how natural filmmaking was at that time um, because you just grew up with a lot of American movies and they were very stylized, very um, MGM, which I love. Don't get me wrong. I love that period of film so much. And then you're watching Lake of the Dead and you're just like, oh, people were just people and it feels very modern. <laughs> Hanging out near a lake. Nothing bad's going to happen. No, <laughs> just just a nice holiday by the lake. What could go wrong? Um, which is a lot of these movies, actually. Um, apart from the ones that we're talking about, what was the... Because you've talked about some of your favorites in your in your channel. But what are some of the other movies on the uh, movies on the set that you just were like, oh, this is great? <laughs> well, uh, it's hard to break it down because mm -hmm. I, I'm one of those people who pretty much enjoys most things that I watch because yeah. I usually find something, you know, great about it. Um, but the ones that really kind of stood out that uh, I quite enjoyed were, I have them right in front of me. I'm doing an alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. So not in the order of the set, but Allison's birthday was one that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, this twists and turns, but I love the, uh, the cultish elements from that film. Um, and, uh, it almost felt like a TV movie in some sense too, um, yes. which I enjoyed. Uh, I would say Il Demono, uh, the Italian film. Oh, yes. Uh, mm. Which was, uh, it is a long one, but at the same time, there were some moments in that film that, uh, just struck me, uh, as like terrifying. Mm. And, uh, there's a spider walk in there that's like predates the exorcist, which is, <laughs> yes, it um, does. very, very great. Um, and then I'll just, uh, I'll list two more. Um, another one was A Field in England, which uh, I hadn't seen, which is, I think, the, the, the most recent one in the set. Yes. 2013. Mm. And uh, that's by Ben Wheatley. And um, it's a psychedelic trip of a movie, but it's a gorgeous movie, too. Um, and very British, of course. Um, and then the other one that I enjoyed the most was Tilbury, which is the Icelandic one that was just goofy as all get out <laughs> i was not expecting uh yeah tilbury is one of my favorites because i was not because when you're watching this set these are very serious and very dark movies and then all of a sudden you get a milk demon just like vomiting or spurting um green gooey water. milk on on people it's <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah it does have a lot of the sort of the same themes as in like colonization because this was during the british occupation during world war ii i think no. um and all these sort of kind of things, but at the same time, you just get this goofy ass demon and you're just like, going, what the hell is this? This is amazing. Um, yeah, I really loved um, Dreaming, actually, the Australian movie. Um, I thought that was a really interesting thing, mainly because um, the documentary, it is brought up that, um, as we'll get into with colonization um, and some of the shit that went down, um, in Australia, there was a big celebration of the bicentennial in 1988. Um, it's, this was huge. I mean, it was nationally televised. There was like campaigns, people singing. It was all a big thing. And what was ignored was what this actually meant. It was like, um, what meant for a, the population that was here before, um, the, um, Brits came over. And this is kind of Celia touches on it a little, oh, quite a bit. And also dreaming. And I really love that. I love Tilbury. 
Um, I was really surprised by Dark Water. Yeah, that um, one was you know, like a Fulci and, and Bava film in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, it is so dark, so it, not violent, but actually the one that creeped me out the most. This is because mm. very little dialogue throughout the entire movie, which was a weird thing to see in a 1993 movie, I think. But so smart and kind of where this movie goes, it almost feels like an art piece. I think the director was an actual visual artist as well. So I think that is into a lot into it, but that was um, one that I absolutely loved. And um, Eyes of Fire was insane. Um, I love, <laughs> yeah, the movie's kind of almost bookended by these trippy movies. Like you've got Eyes of Fire at the beginning and then you have a field in England toward the end in, in the last disc. So if you're watching them in order, then you'll get these kind of nice bookended kind of surreal things but um yeah well, eyes of fire goes i was so many times i was like going i was not expecting that at all <laughs> there's so many there's so many c cool camera tricks and practical effects yeah. that uh, just it makes you feel like you're going going insane <laughs> as you're it, watching it it really really does it was like wait did i just take some mushrooms and not realize i'd eaten the wrong one um it's it's just the inventiveness of these movies that often will look like a television movie, um, which I think uh, because they're on the lower budget, you're like, oh, this looks like a TV movie. Wait, no, no, this is definitely not a, a things that are happening that I would never put on TV. <laughs> this would scar people for, for generations if that was the case. Exactly. Except Tilbury, which was an Icelandic TV movie. And if I had seen that as a kid, I would have scarred me for life. Um, but now yeah, I'm... especially if you can't dance ever again. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh my god, people sat down and like on a whenever night of a week that Tilbury came out and watched that. I'm like, bless the Icelandics, I love it. <laughs> I, will um, say, I will say that I have, have increased my Cadbury uh, chocolate intake <laughs> since, that, <laughs> since that film. <laughs> Very much so. Um, yeah, I love that touch in it. It's just, it's such a glorious movie, especially because everything, again, is very dark and serious, except for say, oh no, uh, Vi is very fun and also... Um, I can't also, pronounce it. Lip, lip, uh. Yes, that one's just because yeah. everyone's such a doofus in that one. Um, oh my god, all village idiots. <laughs> all village idiots. It's like no one knows how to handle this vampire. And even in um, all the Polish ones I loved, uh, the wolf, she wolf, wolf. Um, yeah, the she wolf. They don't know how to deal with women. Yeah, Wojciech. Yeah, they do not yeah. know how to deal with women at all. And so they just go. She will pointing and yelling and cursing them, saying you're a witch. Um, it's yeah, it's it's an amazing, amazing set. It is one of the ones where I can completely justify, uh, though I justify all my purchases. Um, but this is one that I yes, this is um, I particularly can go no. This one is if you want an education on kind of what you think folk horror is this is the best way to go because it is such a beautiful array of movies that do so much and everything like that so um yes and might as well get with that we might as well get into the actual double double feature we're gonna go claire cut and then celia in my imaginary th theater we're sitting there the curtains are opening and we're gonna have the first trailer for claire cut now what would your first trailer be for this amazing movie um, I think my first trailer uh, for a clear cut would be The New World. I've always believed that something good was in store for me. Destiny all my own.
perfect. Um, uh, Terrence Malick? Yes, a Terrence Malick film. Uh, yeah. One that I feel like is not necessarily talked about enough. Mm. Um, but, you know, obviously this, this clear cut is you know, made in, in Canada mm. and actually by, we're, we're going to get into it, but a Polish director, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, which is a very interesting uh, background story there, but it's interesting to get, uh, you know, we're, we're putting a new world in there. Of course, I, I think anything to do with uh, Native Americans here in uh, America in general, Canada or mm. the United States, I think would be a really good introduction and I think that the new world really does touch on a lot of things that, um, you know, as modern viewers now that we, uh, you know, we're not looking at the Disney version of Pocahontas, right? We're, yeah. we're looking at actual things that probably went down. Obviously, Terrence Malick's is a little bit stylized. And, mm. But uh, yeah, I, I love the movie. And uh, I'm also a big Colin Farrell fan, as everyone knows. <laughs> So. No, he's, he's, um, I haven't, st this has been on my watch list for quite a while. I did notice on, I think Columbus Day, I saw a lot of people watching this movie and I was like, good choice. Um, no, this looks absolutely beautiful and Colin Farrow is just, um, well, he's all eyebrows in that movie again. And, um, speaking of which, I was kind of surprised how much I loved Colin Farrow in the Batman, even though he could not do any eyebrow work in it. He was not allowed to, and yet he was still great. But, um, so he's more than his eyebrows, um, which is, which is fantastic. But this trailer is, yeah, it is, looks beautiful. It looks so lush and just that Terrence, Terrence Malick um, uh, way he can just take landscape and just turn it into something else. It, yeah, it feels like a very otherworldly trailer. Yeah, I think that's what we need to get in, in into when we get into Clear Cut. Yes. Um, oh, yes. That's so, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that would be a good choice for, for my trailer, New World. That is absolutely perfect. Okay, so for my first trailer, I am going to go... Yep, I'm going to go for a little indie horror movie called Blood Quantum from 2019, directed by Jeff Barnaby. So how long were you out there for? I lost track of the time. Did you get bit? This planet we're on is so sick of our shit. That's why the dead keep coming back to life. You're immune. I'm not. What if my baby isn't either? Run! It's bad. Ninagasi. I heard that you could cure bites here. Ain't nobody immune here but us. Another Canadian movie. Um, it's about it's essentially an a zombie invasion from a indigenous Canadian perspective. So uh, people keep come keep coming back from the dead, and you're kind of look, looking at this new society um, of people who are just trying to get through this. And because it's from the uh, Native American or Native Canadian perspective, it really goes into the idea of being invaded and having your kind of culture kind of ripped away and all these other things that this movie does it's it's a really well done movie you can find it on shutter um it's relatively new but i was really impressed um by this very gory gory movie but it was a lot of fun that's i have not seen that one actually and now i'm glad that i have shutter so i can check it out and uh i think you bringing up gore is a, is a good thing too it's a nice preview right yes <laughs> so. yes this actually has more gore than clear cut but when clear cut wants to use gore it is 
Yeah, I come actually forgot about him. Like he doesn't actually kill anyone. Oh no, wait, he does, and he does some. Mm, he does some things. Mm. Grand green. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's yeah. But this is really worth uh, watching. I think it's a great movie, and I think um, yeah, I wanted to have an, a, an indigenous director um, in the trailers, and there there is some really amazing genre stuff happening in Canada with with that. So um, yeah, I would definitely recommend that. Nathan, what is your second trailer for Clear Cut? So my second trailer for Clear Cut, um, this one I'm still kind of uh, pondering between. Um, mm. But I think what I would like to do um, for it would be... What was the first one you said? Deliverance. Deliverance. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a movie. <laughs> yes. These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasi River. You look around you, Lewis. He could be out there anywhere watching us right now. We ain't gonna be so nice not hard to follow dragon and Corpse. I think that would be a good choice because of where I'm located. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, no, Deliverance is an interesting trailer because it's kind of very much similar to the plot of Deliverance. But whenever you look at the deliver or Deliverance or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Hills of Eyes, these are hillbillies. These are kind of these subhuman, which they're not, but they're kind of portrayed as these subhumans. Whereas Graham Greene is, well, he's the smartest person in the forest. Um, so I think it's kind of this nice juxtaposition, juxtaposition um, to kind of showing kind of how it's upending what Deliverance did almost a little bit. Yeah, I, I think this is interesting, too, because, you know, with Deliverance, I think it, it also showcases kind of like what we're going to get to with, with it in Clear Cut, that kind of juxtaposition between modern society and, you know, our, you know, our I guess, nature, natural roots, even though um, it, with this one, it's just another colonizer before that um, <laughs> uh, lived there for a little bit longer, right? Yeah. But it, that it's that wildness versus the the tame city life and uh i think deliverance would be a really good um kind of thriller to add, add on top of what we already are about to get to so um yeah i think it'd be a good choice yeah i think it is i think it's a i've only seen the movie once and it's a it stays with you um but yeah it's also about this very kind of spectrum of masculinity and how you deal with things in the forest and one-on-one -on -one against nature or in terms of this of play cut green green um but yeah that's a great great trailer my second trailer i am gonna go for actually you know what i'm gonna go for william girdler's grizzly from 1976. a motion picture is coming that does not cater to fantasy you will see nature's most savage man-eating animal by its size alone it can overpower and devour any human Grizzly, over 18 feet tall, over 2,000 pounds, the largest carnivorous brown beast in the world. The campers come in here, they leave food around, the bears get the smell of it, and that's it. Well, this is different. 
This bum's eating his victims. Yes, this is a a, um, a Jaws ripoff, but it is literally about. I was kind of thinking about. I was watching it clay cut this time about how much more eco kind of horror um, clear cut is because I think Grain Green is such a force of nature, and it is literally nature coming up to torture Michael Hogan, um, which I'll get into. Um, but uh, who plays Bud? Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, I will always love William Girdler anything all the move like a very few movies he made he we lost him far too soon um but uh the human cigarette uh George, christopher george going up against a massive grizzly bear is just a fun time at the movies it's uh it really is jaws in, in the woods uh mm, it is yeah like, a lot of the setup is too but i mean i i i have uh the movie myself here in the states mm. uh, i've seen it once but it's something that is quite a lot of fun, but also I, I love the amount of uh, almost like they use a real real grizzly bear uh, in mm. a lot of the shots, and then when then when you see the other the bear itself, like like as they're moving, they're like mm. he's so much bigger. He <laughs> is. <laughs> so it's like how big is this grizzly bear actually? Is I don't we don't know, <laughs> but. Sure. <laughs> yeah it's it's a it's a lot of fun and I, I think this would work really well uh just because it really does go uh, in depth with uh, you know with clear cut yeah and uh with that we might as well get into clear cut on the edge of the wilderness a battle is being fought between those with legal rights We've been listening to all sides of the issue. And those with native rights. Tell them they lost. Yeah, it's just a long battle. We haven't won yet. Now, a solitary warrior is taking the battle deeper into the darkness. I'm on your side. Right now. Where beauty becomes terror. Dreams become nightmares. This is your revenge. And life becomes survival. Say a prayer. I know I was completely blown away by this movie when I saw it. I heard people kind of already talking about this is one of the better movies. And this is a movie, this is a set with all movies, If you, even if you don't like, you'll find really interesting. But this was kind of one of the better ones. Um, how was your first um, experience with, with Clear Cut? Uh, Clear Cut was a movie as i was like trotting along this set because i went from disc one to you know the very yeah. end uh this was kind of near the middle i think this mm. was disc nine i believe mm. um, and so far i had seen you know a few tv movies and mm. a few ones that are uh you know with the same quality as clear cut and the in the sense of like oh this is actually saying something pretty important here mm. um but yeah going through this movie it just seemed uh, like a normal movie at first in in some sense and then started going in different directions that I didn't expect and yeah uh, the ending just kind of blew me away uh, the first time I watched it and and it just it did not leave my memory because of uh, a particular sequence uh, that show well there's a couple sequences in this yes. movie that don't leave your memory but yeah I just loved uh how everything goes here especially graham green like mm. he is just an unforgettable character but i also loved how kind of comedic it was too oh yeah in, in it's so funny 
Yeah, darkly funny. Like, <laughs> darkly funny. Just like, you know, everyone is just staring at each other all the time and almost like upping each other. It's that it's this macho kind of ness uh, to uh, some of, uh, you know, that, um, how, how, I don't know how to describe it. More or less like, are you going to do it? Yeah. Okay, I'm daring you to, I'm daring you to do it. And the whole time, it's just like, you're kind of uneasy the entire time. But then you, you know, cuts that tension with some of that comedy, especially the delivery of Graham Greene's character with some of his jokes that he's just off-putting with uh, some is like, oh, the dumb engine, huh? This is what he's going to say. And I, you know, I, I couldn't help myself but crack up, but it's also sinister because, you know, it is a serious thing that people uh, dealt with and, um, yeah anyway yes there's a line in saying um when i think grain because the whole well the whole movie is um essentially about a lawyer from toronto is a defending or helping um a tribe a specific tribe i can't remember which one it is that's my bad to um stop logging happening in the area so they're essentially just decimating and when you the first shot you get is of this beautiful canadian scenery and then just devastation um which is hard to look at because you're like going oh god okay and there's this massive process happening with the police just beating the shit out of people i mean it is a full-on turning into a full-on riot and sort of what happens is because he's lost the case and what happens is is that um we'll get into sort of the magical real elements that kind of travel through this movie but essentially albert is decides to take this lawyer to task um because he thinks he's a very ineffectual male um, and they kidnap the mill owner, played by Michael Hogan, who um, he never stops being an asshole once. And I kind of have to admire the fact that no matter what happened to you in this forest, the end, you are still an asshole. You are, you have learned yeah. nothing um, about... Easy. Yeah. Um, and anyone who sides with them are just, yeah, you are racist, you're horrible, but you do not... He is, oh my God, his asshole... They're funny again, because he's... But at the same time, he is awful. Um, and it is Arthur takes him out into the woods and, uh, as you said before, they have a staring contest with each other. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. Cause there's this one line where they do come across, uh, some other hunters and Albert chases them off and he sort of turns to the lawyer, um, played by, um, Ron Lee, I think. Um, let me get that name right. Yeah. Ron Lee. And he goes, uh, why didn't you run? He goes, yeah, you would have shot me. And then Albert just turns to him and goes, I could shoot you if you stay as well. And just walks away as in, you don't know what I'm going to do to you. And you don't know when I'm going to do it to you. And it's a terrifying, terrifying movie. But at the same time, Graham Greene is such a charismatic actor on screen. Um, and because of where he comes from and his point of view, you almost side with him more than anything, which is a really interesting way to do the movie. Especially considering he is doing some awful shit in this movie. Absolutely. And I, I mean, the thing is, it's it's interesting because I watched it twice, right? Mm. And I know you asked about that first time watching it, but this second time, which I watched it earlier, uh, you know, in preparation of the, this podcast, of course, and to really um, understand what already, I, I already knew what was going to happen, right? And watching the mannerisms from Arthur, so Graham Greene's character, and knowing what he's saying, I, I definitely side with him a lot more. Mm. I, like first go around, it's like, it's like, why is he being such a dick? Mm. And like, you know, in my head, I'm just thinking, it's like, it's like, I, I get it, but at the same time, it wasn't really, um, it wasn't uh, catching on for me. Yeah. And once I had seen it and you know knew the whole picture, 
uh, and rewashing it and retreading it, I think really puts it a lot in perspective. It's like the whole time I'm like, well, our main character is kind of an idiot and yeah. really he just pretends like he thinks he knows everything about it because he read it in books. Yes. Right. And he's, you know, somebody who can help out because he has the power. Mm. Right. And that he has the power now. And so he's representing the people who have lost power. And even though, you know, the power is not necessarily within a people itself, which is what, you know, we get to. So. Yeah, and it's also an interesting point that Graham Greene's Albert is kind of the monster that they have created because Michael Hogan is constantly throwing these awful stereotypes back at Albert. Um, oh, you're a dumb engine, or apologize for the language, um, or your traditions is to freeze to death. Um, the whole skinning people alive or scalping thing comes up um, in a very disturbing way. But um, even though that was never particularly a tradition of a lot of tribes, it was because it was kind of like a tit for tat kind of thing when you're getting into the um, uh, in colonial wars. Um, and that's what happens to Hogan because he thinks that's what Albert is. It's a very much a idea of they've created this monster and now they're actually facing him, even though, because they just don't understand nor want to understand this culture. Um, as we'll get into with Celia, it's, um, which kind of is more in metaphorical terms than this one, which is blatant. It's easier to forget them and try to pretend that they don't exist um, than actually having to have a dialogue, which has exactly the same in Australia. Um, having to have a dialogue with them and try to understand them and to um, go, okay, we've had this history. I need to actually understand what these traditions are respect them and actually have a dialogue instead of Michael Hogan just being in the woods and being a complete dick. He's, I mean, from the get-go, it just, yeah, I love his performance so much because um, I hate him so much and I'm just like, stop making me laugh, I hate you. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, he just, him just trying to coax uh, you know, like, like, Hey, we could, we could get Arthur. We could, we can get out of here. Like you can, you and I, I'll pay you a lot of money to get, to get out mm. of here. It's like, oh, he's coming back. You know, like he yeah. starts shouting and then he's like, he's basically like, Oh, like I never left. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm always yeah, here. <laughs> I've always been here. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, this is a film that really kind of mix mixes that, that, that culture of like, we have this idea, especially coming from where we both come from. Mm. Uh, you know, I guess that European background, yeah. you know, back in the, back in the day, um, that idea of just having uh, dialogue is is a really big thing with Western cultures just in general. Yeah. But I think it is interesting. I think that this is almost like a really great argument against that, actually, mm. with more of a dissemination uh, of, of communication because of these different cultures, uh, right? Like, it's like, almost like we can't play by the rules that we've set, right? Yes. These, these rules are different in each of these different places. And I think that's the same with, you know, Arthur's character here in Clearcut. Um, I think he is the one who was like, Hey, you're not going to get answers from me if you're just talking to me. Mm. Like, you know, there, there is, there's ways to approach this. And honestly, I mean, even after the second viewing, it's a movie that I still don't fully understand. I don't think that's the, I think that's the point is like, I don't think you'll fully ever understand it unless um, you've uh, experienced some of these traumas. Right. Absolutely. Um, there's a moment when they're in the first in the boat, I think with um, before it all really kicks off. He just literally met Arthur, uh, Ron has met Arthur Albert for the first time. Um, and it is, I think the character's Wolf, Wolf, um, and 
Albert's needling Peter, the lawyer, a lot and sort of saying, oh, you understand us. He goes, oh, I've read you, about you in books. It's like, okay, here we go. And then he goes, oh, we have an oral culture, which is kind of using the frame, the language that a lot of, say, European colonizers had used about, um, about um, a lot of Indian tribes is that they, it's almost like a, um, a derogative, a der I can't say that word, um, that they didn't re they didn't have a written language. So obviously it was oral, so therefore they're less than, and then he kind of throws, right. yeah, they're primitive. And he throws it back in the face and saying, yeah, this is our oral culture, takes a snake and bites the head off and throws the rest of the snake away. Um, which is saying two things. One, you think that I'm a primitive barbarian and two, you're not going to understand it anyway, and I'm not going to explain it to you. It's, um, it, yeah, it's a really fascinating thing. Um, he's he's constantly telling both Michael Hogan and Ron Lee, those, uh, Bud and Peter things, but sort of saying you are not going to understand. And there's a really brutal moment where Bud is just taunting him about what he thinks um, tradition is, and he goes, oh, your people start freezing to death because you didn't have amenities like we do we gave you those things and all he can say is they don't work our pipes don't work and he goes but they're free go get them and he's like government doesn't give a shit about us nothing works the phones don't work there's no there has been no money put into any infrastructure into um this and it sort of says a lot when i come from a country that has facilities like this like healthcare, all this kind of thing but yet if you look into a lot of indigenous communities that stuff isn't getting there so it's kind of like Okay, so only a very section of the population is allowed these things. Everyone else is just going to have to deal with it. And it's, yeah, he, and I don't think Graham Greene says all that much in it. He's kind of a, he's, he talks, but he doesn't really, yeah, he's a kind of almost like a silent, scary figure in this. Yeah, I think his, his presence is that uneasiness that just continues uh, through and through because, mm -hmm. I mean, even though, Usually, what he's saying you know, like makes us laugh. We, we've said that it, there's some comedic moments, oh, in yes, there, but it's because it's dark comedy, right? Yeah, like, very dark. Yeah, there's a truth behind that stuff that he's saying. Hmm. If he's saying something, and I think that's what makes us laugh because it's like this is so absurd that this is like he said that uh, that we're enjoying that, right? Hmm. And I mean, we even covered that in in Bruges, right? Yes, when we talked last um, exactly <laughs> there's always some some dark sinister truth behind uh what he had to say or what he did right mm -hmm. um and i think that's what makes him uh you know such a such a memorable character uh and also i know that graham green himself in one of the supplements mm -hmm. in this um in this extra feature here he mentions this time on the project and he says how much he enjoys this is one of his favorite roles he's ever taken because i, I mean i've recognized this guy from a lot of different uh, TV movies and he's things a, from the 90s. He's yeah. a great character actor. I mean, I nearly picked a movie, Wind River, to play as a trailer, which he is in, I want to say. It's a um, Taylor Sheridan movie. Very, very good. Um, and he's got this, like, tired expression of, oh, God, more people are trying to help us. Um, right. But he's but he's always really good whenever he's in something. He's, like, just really solid. And to see him actually get a chance to play a role that is so multifaceted so much going on um and he does it so well his face is yet yeah, says everything and nothing at the same time and he is this kind of force of nature um in it um and he's he's great he's so great i know i think this one i think this movie did win a few canadian film awards back in the day even though i don't think it did all that well 
um and i hope this is because the fact that it's in this set i hope that it gets talked about more i think really people need to seek this movie out because yeah you will just be completely entranced in it because it is does this thing where because these guys are egging each other on constantly for different reasons um you're kind of waiting for the violence and when the violence happens it's almost like a throwaway it is horrific <laughs> yeah it's uh it's like i said earlier it'll sear into your memory because yeah. i mean there's some, some crazy sequences and i and, you know getting back to just canadian output too and in, in this mm. film um it's interesting too and i know i highlighted a little earlier i'm gonna completely butcher this director's name i um i think it's rizard uh Bujakowski. i haven't uh, even i've been avoid yes i've been avoiding saying his name rizard yeah <laughs> I would butcher it. Yeah. So he came from uh, he came from another country, a, West, yeah. a, you know, a, a European country, and then you know made this film. And uh, another thing that uh, another supplement that was mentioned uh, on this was that uh, people, uh, Native Americans who have who had watched this film and not knowing who made it, mm. um, when he would uh, maybe show it at a reservation or mm. wherever uh, like a tribe was meeting and watching this film they would watch it and then afterwards they would be shocked that a, a like a white polish director <laughs> directed this and they're like how like this is you know this is a lot more closer to you know our experience than a lot of the portrayals that we had seen in the past uh yes. in, in hollywood and, and other uh, films right yeah it really is i was thinking oh this has to be done by a native canadian uh, a first people and oh he's polish wow he kind of understood from the get-go i have to have this from almost graham green's point of view i mean yes ron lee is the audience surrogate but actually it's graham green's point of view and the fact that he realized that he had to do it that way i think is a really smart way because this movie becomes much more interesting and much more complicated in terms of um what a lot of um um indigenous people native americans native canadians um have been going through um the helplessness with the, the fact that they're playing a game with a set of rules that's always going to be stacked against them no matter what i mean even because at the beginning peter's like yeah we'll appeal we might have a chance and he fully knows that they don't they're not going to win this they're not going to decide um to stop logging because it's just too much a part of industry and even um again bud the worst person in the world says oh no we you know we provide jobs for a thousand people we give them homes we give them income and then you're just realizing yeah again it's not for the native canadians they get squat they don't get any of this um all they see is that their land just being torn apart and being given the middle finger of um you need to be like us you need to forget your traditions because otherwise you do not get to belong to our society we or the society which you belong you don't belong and i think it's a really smart way because yeah as i said at the beginning you, you most of your sympathy is with graham green even the one even though he is skinning um bud's leg <laughs> um i yeah, forgot how it. Said it, everyone <laughs> yeah we said it it's coming sorry i spoiled it but um and he's and yes he is still an arsehole that i gotta admire his his dedication to being awful um and that finger point at the end oh my that, god 
that is yeah watching it this time around this really sort of changed the context of what i thought of the ending yes he is still blaming um because he can't arrest gray and green's character but they can arrest ron lee and he points to him and goes it was him even though he was actually just as kidnapped just as trying but he was since he was trying to broker peace kind of between the two it's his fault and he even though he rescued him that's essentially but it's not enough um and now ron lee's firmly being put into the other camp and he's now essentially a terrorist which is kind of a theme for both movies which is fascinating he is mm-hmm. um he is no he is literally been taken out of his society and now he doesn't belong and i think that really hit home for me on this one on this yeah, watch yeah. I, it's pretty clear cut and i had to say it like that yes you did so. <laughs> no other way around it's very clear cut because <laughs> yeah first watch was like why is bud blaming him he was helped and then i was like oh it's because he made the decision of he's buds basically said he does not belong in society anymore he is part of the he is now with the other community um and that's how he thinks of it and yeah and that's the the smirk on his face of just like fuck you bud fuck you <laughs> his extraordinary <laughs> is in the car fuck you bud it's just fuck you bud that's <laughs> you're the worst and the movie ends and the uh, movie ends yeah, it's um, it's definitely a bleak, it's a bleak movie. But I, I, at the same time, you know, there's those comedic moments. But it's one of those. I mean, this is really. I mean, that's the reason why I know you picked it. Is this is one of the biggest standouts from this set? Mm. Uh, it's, it's it's just such a powerful film, and uh, it makes you want to watch more. You know, it really does. It is one of those movies because I watched everything out of order, so I didn't go through the chronologically, which is probably how you were meant to watch the set. I think the set has a very specific purpose of watching tonally, it's nationally, yeah, it's very country based. I was just hopping all around the all over the place, but to watch that and it gets its own disc because a lot of the movies are on two movies per disc, but this gets its own disc, and I think even the set acknowledges this is a very important movie. I think. And the more people that see it, I think the better because it is an extraordinary movie. It's one of my favorites. It's going to be one of my discoveries of the year. It's um, all the performances from those three are amazing. Graham Greene, you just want to throw awards at him because he is so amazing. This is a man who is in pain um, and everything like that. And one thing I did, again, notice on this watch was how much of it is a be careful what you wish for movie. Um, Because Graham Greene is kind of there, but you don't see his face. You just sort of see this kind of almost silhouette not silhouette but he's cut off the head um rise guard purposely didn't show his face when you first kind of see him and then he doesn't really come into the movie until after a sweat um lodge thing when um ron lee partakes in this kind of tradition and he because he's in the lodge he gets these visions of desolated landscape and violence and he really wants to punch but in the face you can tell from that little interaction they have at the beginning that he just wants to punch him in the face and then Albert just shows up and goes, what are you going to do for me, white man? Come on, let's go. Yeah, let's go on this boat. Let's, let's have a, a good, it's a good talk. I, I think that's a really nice transition too, because mm. uh, he had all those hallucinations. And honestly, I think that's what makes it so, like that is like the most explicit way of it being a folk horror film. Yes. Is because of those, those visions that he has. And it's, I mean, it happens a couple times in the movie actually. It does. You know, in mm. the end as well. Um but yeah, I think uh, I think those those are also uh, parts where it's like you you know watching it the second time around, you're like it's like you kind of noticed him 
uh, kind of around, even if he wasn't uh, maybe in a corporeal form as mm. like Arthur himself. Mm. And I sense that from the opening shot, actually, of this film, uh, when it starts underwater um, yes. and then it kind of goes above water, I'm like, okay, mm. this is all, it's all coming uh, it's making it much uh, cl- more clear. <laughs> it is. More cl- it's more clear cut. There's Yeah, because there are shots when trees bleed in this movie. There are shots whenever you see a tree being logged, it looks painful. And yeah, you're right. This movie starts underwater, then rises up, and this will be very much bookended and very kind of... Graham Greene is not... I've always... You can read it both ways, um, but the movie really is setting up the fact that he is something more than human, that he is something... Because he talks about the earth a lot, especially when he's talking about what people are doing to it. And this kind of very environmental thing of, um, yeah, we did things that we kind of respected the earth more. And it is kind of very much one of those, um, it does kind of rely on that feeling that we're, is how people sort of saw pollution and everything at the in the 80s and early 90s of don't make the earth sad. Um uh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm thinking Wainswood too with the half naked Native American, um, and of that course. whole yes, um, <laughs> that whole thing because and the single tear. Um, but it does it is kind of referencing that in a way. But that is how I think people were looking at environmental issues during that time, and I think that movie reflects that. It was look at the world, don't make it sad, make it happy, be good. Now we have a very different conversation about it, but that is because things are ramping up and we need to like shout at people. But um, that was kind of how a lot of environmental issues were kind of based. So there is kind of that kind of element, but when you prefer, prefer, prefer that personify it in Graham Greene, it suddenly becomes very real. And the earth is angry. The earth is like, which is why it's so much more Ikuhara as well as folk, because you do have these visions and there's a character that randomly just shows up and goes, you're dreaming. And he's like, no, I'm not. And he's like, no, you're not. But, at the same time, you kind of are. Like, this is real, but at the same time, it's not real. And then violence happens, and you're like, seems pretty real. But no, it is literally one of those eco-horror movies when the Earth has had enough and is going to start kicking people's butt. And it is also through that Native American kind of point of view. And, uh, yeah, this movie is amazing. Highly recommend it. And I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a good one. It is so good. It is, um, yeah, and again, you'll see three types of distinct masculinity. They're all kind of egging each other on. It has got so much going on. Um, anything else you want to say about Claire Cat before we move on? Um, not necessarily. I will say that the, the another reason why this is uh, a disc by itself is it actually has two commentaries on it. Mm. Um, it also has a lovely amount of special features, of course, and there's also some short films uh, that actually deal more with Native American issues up in Canada. There's um, one actually in particular that I, I, I really, uh, I didn't want to say enjoy because that's not the adjective I would use, mm-hmm. um, but you are on Indian uh, Island mm-hmm. and it's from 1969, it's a Mohawk demonstration uh, at the US and Canada border that there was a treaty, I guess, in the French and Indian War that, um, you know, had, hadn't, hadn't been, you know, uh, it's, it's been altered when the U.S. and Canada border was made, and it actually messed with that that land, and mm. it actually showed you the protest because uh, they shut down the highway uh, with a bunch of protesters, and um, you know, and they all had valid concerns about it. And so, um, I think it's a really great uh, piece of documentary 
uh, short film uh, attached to it. And there's also Ballad of Crowfoot from 1968. And then there's also this, uh, this 2000 and uh, I think 11, maybe 17. I can't read my handwriting. Mm. Uh, <laughs> a little uh, short film called Consume, which is another film about, you know, this, this idea of, uh, you know, consuming all the resources that we have, right? Because this is, you know, full core, right? Yes. No, it is but. absolutely. So please seek out Claire Cut you know what even the set is worth buying for this movie you'll get a whole bunch of other stuff but yeah clear cut is amazing um with that we are going to go on to another movie that i thought i had seen through my watch through but i hadn't actually i was getting confused with another movie um and that is of course celia now nathan what would your first trailer be for celia um, I think my first trailer for Celia, having seen it now twice, uh, I think I would go with Watership Down first. It's a beautiful day. All is calm and peaceful in the meadow. Or is it? If you look closely, very closely, you'll discover a whole new world with a world of difference, full of exciting adventure and desperate conflict. We've got to go away from the Warren. All of us. Go away? Yes, before it's too late. Is there something wrong? What's he on about? They're coming. A world of ruthless tyranny and brave rebellion. I'll settle with you myself, bigwig. Come on and try, you crack-brained slave driver. A world of incredible courage and mortal fear. A terrible thing is coming. I think I would... I picked this film because uh, at the heart of Celia, there's a lot of things going on in this movie in Celia, but we'll get to it. But there is this whole rabbit scare during the 1950s that is a, a huge influence. And I mean, I guess it goes all the way over uh, to, to merry old England, right? And, oh, and yeah. Watership Down, Richard Adams uh, work. And I love uh, Watership Down. And I think that rabbits um, really do act as like a surrogate um, with displaced, um, you know, people. And I think that would work perfectly for Celia. I had this in, this is one of the, I had multiple ideas for Celia, but this is definitely one of them. You can't help think of Watership Down. Um, I saw this movie way too young. Like I was at a neighbor's <laughs> place. I think it was only like three uh, or four. And they're like, hey, what? I'm like, oh, a cartoon about a rabbits. Cartoon. Yeah, cartoon. Oh, <laughs> no. I mean, I love the work. I love the book and I do love the movie. But that movie is horrifying. I mean, um, rabbit murder takes on a whole new meaning with that movie, but what it is sort of saying about displaced peoples and um, genocide essentially is kind of incredible. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's like, think of, I, I, I remember when I first approached Watershed Down, uh, luckily I was in my team. <laughs> Good. I had read The Hobbit, of course, right? Mm. And I, I love these kind of adventure stories. And I, I, I ran into this one, actually, and I'm like, wow, this is so much darker. Um, just reading the, the work, you know, mm. um, and then watching the film is like, yep, that's a yep. That is uh, definitely an, an adult or like, you know, a young adult oriented uh, film <laughs> that uh, del delves a lot deeper than just rabbits killing each other. Like it's it's, it's got a lot to say. And uh, yeah, uh, I love that. I love that movie, but it's terrifying. <laughs> Oh, it is absolutely terrifying. It's an incredible movie, and yeah, it says a lot to say, and I think it is perfect to um, a trailer for Celia because I think it 
that they overlap absolutely perfectly as we get into um someone who is from down under we have a very particular relationship uh with rabbits that is very similar to watership town so um yeah this is a perfect 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 trailer um therefore i am my first trailer for celia i am gonna go for another kind of well it's more of an australian movie um where uh, human beings are also equated with an animal and that is of course uh philip noyce's 2002 rabbit proof fence every aboriginal born in this state comes under my control these children the half castes what is to happen to them they cannot be left as they are our task is to take them from their primitive world and teach them right from wrong it's Molly, isn't it? I know it all feels very strange, but after a few days you'll feel quite at home. Come on, what do you think? We gotta go now. Where are we going? We're going home to mother. How are we gonna get there? Walk, come on. This is a, a movie that really delves into another aspect of a very dark Australian past, as in um, the unfortunate uh, government uh, policy of taking a lot of Indigenous children away from their parents and putting them in more Western families or more missionary kind of orphanages because they wanted to um, make them white. That is, that is the premise. It's a slow genocide. That's unfortunately what that was. And Rabbit Proof Fence is about three siblings who are at an orphanage and want to get back, who run away to get back to their family, and they follow a Rabbit Proof Fence, which is comes up in Celia, what a Rabbit Proof Fence is. It's basically a thing to keep rabbits out of, of farms. It's very, very long. These things can travel oh, yeah. miles, kilometers, miles, miles of, of, of distance. And this is what they are following. And this movie definitely equates to how a lot of, unfortunately, Australian history has seen and has treated um, its First Nation people. Um, and it's a really well done movie. I will say it does delve into the uh, magical black man um, thing a little too much at the end. But in saying that, um, it's got a really, well, it's awful. Um, but Kenneth Branagh does a really nice, awful performance in it. The kids are great. It's got some amazing Australian scenery. And it, yeah, it's, it's a really great movie. It, definitely check it out. Yeah, I love that movie. I remember watching it uh, actually in film school. And, oh, wow. Uh, uh, well, I didn't go to film school. I took a film class. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I also really love uh, David uh, Gallippi in it as, yes. as uh, Moodoo, uh, who, uh, who's in a lot of Aus uh, amazing Australian films. Of yes, course, he was. Mm. Playing a bounty hunter, right? Of all, yes. of all things. No, it, there's a general rule. You have to have David Gillipy and, uh, oh God, I'm blanking, Bill Hunter in your movie. Otherwise, it wasn't Australian. Those are the two actors <laughs> that probably are in most movies. And that's a signal like, ah, I'm watching Australian. There's Dave Gillipy and there's Bill Hunter over there. Um, yep, this is this is Aussie. Yeah, this has got just a, also just a really great Australian ca cast, even a early Jason Clark appearance in this one as well. I was like, oh shit, that's that guy. <laughs> There's that guy, yeah. Mm. He's been in a few things since. <laughs> yeah, he has. <laughs> no, but yeah. um, yeah. No, this is this is a uh, it's a sad, it's a very very sad movie. But it's it um, yeah, like 
lot of probably the trailers and things we're going to talk about with this movie. Nathan, what would your second trailer be for Celia? Well, this is, uh, if people know, uh, if, if they've seen my channel or anything, we'll know I'll be talking about this a lot. And one of probably the reason I picked this, this movie, Celia, um, is uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. In a dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs that mark her return. I, I have to play, play this one because um, this was actually uh, one of the films that really just hit me growing up because uh, this came out, um, you know, in the, the mid to late 2000s, right at that cusp. Yeah, 2008, and, I think, or two, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And I, I just know that at that time I was in my late teens, uh, but I hadn't really, I've always liked blockbusters and, you know, these big action films and whatnot and thrillers and stuff, but I had not ever really approached a film like this, I think at that point and watching this movie, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, I mean, I could go on and on about it, but really kind of why I'm putting it in here with Celia is because it is about a little girl who is trapped in a situation uh, that is actually um, fantastical and real. So it's yes. this reality mixed with um, her own imagination, uh, trying to cope with the the horrors of what's going on in the real world. And um, it's just something that always touched my heart. And it's something that's still to this day, every time I watch Pan's Labyrinth, and I mean, I'm talking about it right now, I'm tearing up right now because I'm thinking about it because it really is that damn impactful. And I still think it's my favorite Del Toro film because I think it just, alongside maybe something like uh, The Devil's Backbone, mm. it really does yeah. speak to Del Toro's background and, um, you know, the traumas uh, that, you know, he's he's dealt with, uh, not necessarily him, but his people. And... Um, yeah, I think uh, that Celia is, uh, you know, this is, a, I think, a really great trailer and almost like a precursor to what eventually Pan's Labyrinth will be a, a thing, right? <laughs> so anyway, it long story short. It really is. You can't help think of Pan's Labyrinth when you are thinking of Celia because it does have a lot of similar themes. I mean, yes, Pan's Labyrinth is a much more of a Spanish Civil War movie and all the horrors that went along with uh, Franco and what was going on during that time. But at the same time, it is about a movie about two realities. Um, you could argue Celia has three or four realities happening in it right. at the same time, but it is very much about two things conciding at once, the imagination, reality, but how they intertwine. It is a masterwork. It is, um, it's a movie I don't watch as often as I think I should, because every time, the couple of times I've watched it, I'm like, oh, this is really good. Why do I forget how good this is? And I should watch it more. And then I don't watch it for five years. 
it's um because i love devil's backbone i love devil's backbone because i think that movie is so stripped back and is so devastating in kind of the microcosm of this orphanage but then pan's labyrinth just opens everything up and the creature work is amazing in this i mean the pale man with the eyes on his hands mm-hmm. and just oh he's almost... right there oh there he is (laughs) and just all this other things that kind of and all the other creature work the fairies and everything like that and what death ultimately means to a child um which we'll get into with celia is uh the lack of understanding of what death is maybe is uh i think pan's labyrinth is a child learning to understand it while celia is still not getting it at all but it's um no it's an incredible incredible movie and this is a perfect perfect trailer Okay, for my second trailer, I am going to go with... Okay, you know what? I'm actually going to go with another Australian movie that has nothing to do with this, but it has got a sense of the Australian suburbs. Um, And if you ask any Australian about this movie, they'll uh, quote it, where tell them he's dreaming or House of Serenity, I'm going for The Castle from 1997. This is my backyard. Is that the runway there? Sometimes you think they're going to land right on top of you. I reckon we're the luckiest family in the world. But one day in June, a knock at the door was to change all that. This is a compulsory acquisition. Our bloody government's trying to take my house. You will be compensated. You can't buy what I've got. Miramax Home Entertainment presents... I'm going to hit him with the big artillery. It's justice, it's law, it's the vibe. Vibe? Yeah. The story of a family. Now that is a head ahead. Who wouldn't let the government take their house. But it's not a house, it's a home. Without a fight. In the High Court today. Case of Daryl versus Goliath. The castle. There's no place like this home. Which is a straight up comedy. Um, nothing about suburb, nothing to do with Celia. But it kind of, the castle is how I think Australians like to think of the suburbs opposed to what Celia is doing. Um, and it's much more comforting. It's much more, um, it's the most quotable movie. I dug a hole, water, but then, uh, water filled it up. Tell him he's dreaming. That's going straight to the pool room. Uh, what's for, what's this? Rissoles. Um, it is maybe one of the most Australian things ever made. Um, and when you watch, I, I kind of, this movie, I like at the beginning, cause that's where all the quotes are. When it actually gets into the plot of the patriarch, uh, I can't remember who played him, but, um, trying to save his house from an expanding airport. Um, I actually live near where this, um, movie is actually was set and filmed. Um, I'm just like, like, this is, this is freaking Melbourne. Um, it's, uh, kind of loses it for me, but you can't deny um, House of Serenity, <laughs> the, the, the castle. <laughs> I have not seen this movie, so I want to watch it. Mm. Obviously, I'm probably, as somebody who is not Australian, will not probably get every reference, maybe, um, mm. but I will, I'm sure I'm still going to have a good time with it. So that sounds a lot, a lot of fun. Oh, no, you will. It is a very endearing kind of movie, and it is very, uh, as Australian will say, bogan is all hell. Um, but it's 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 a really great little movie this has got an early eric banner performance when he was still a comedian um playing a kickboxer enthusiast which yeah makes sense for the the, yeah i just like going yeah it's this movie um but no it's um like my favorite joke in it is and they come a couple gets married and they come back from their honeymoon and the only question uh the family has is what did you watch on the in-flight movie and that was always a big deal for (laughs) us i do not know why the fact that you could watch movies on a plane 
was a big deal um mainly because here yeah, going to the movies was always expensive and traveling was expensive so this was just this extra luxury you got and they always kind of had semi-new releases so um it yeah um if you want to understand how australians like to see themselves watch the castle because we are going into a movie on how australians do not want to see themselves and these kind of movies along with Wake and Fright, get shunned very, very quickly by Australia because it is uh, saying some home truths that we don't necessarily want to hear. And um, that is Celia all over. Little dog Turpy barks so loud that I cannot slumber nor sleep. In the morning I will take off his tail. So the little old man took off little dog Turpy's tail to stop him from barking. That night, along came the hobby owls. Out. Can't we hear the rest, please, miss? You all know how it ends. You've heard it enough times. Look, we have something else to do now. Let's all wish Celia a happy birthday. She'll be nine on Sunday. Grow. All right, now quiet, please, everyone, while we say the final prayer. We thank you, Lord, for all the good things you have brought us this year. We ask you to guide us over the long summer holidays and pray that everyone <coughs> has a safe and happy Christmas. Um, now, I know this is also one of your favorites from the set, um, Nathan. Yes, and uh, I, I'm not going to read this whole thing to you, but I would like to read a little bit of a passage from the Hubias. Yes, uh, which is actually in the the set itself, and it comes with uh, in the booklet. And so I, I will um, try to put on my reading voice for just a second. My, mm. my you know, I tell a story to everyone. Yeah. <clears throat> Once there was an old man and woman and a little girl, and they all lived in a house made of hemp stalks. Now the old man had a little dog named Turpy, and one day the Hubias came and said. Hubia, 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 tear down the hemstocks, eat up the old man and woman, and carry off the little girl. But little dog Turpy barked so that the Hubias ran off. And the old man said, little dog Turpy barks so, little, I messed up, little dog Turpy barks so that I cannot sleep nor slumber. And if I live till morning, I will cut off his tail. So in the morning, the old man cut off little dog Turpy's tail. The next night, the Hubias came again saying, Hubia, 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 tear down the hemstocks, eat up the old man and woman, and carry off the little girl. But little dog Turpy barked so that the Hubias ran off. And the old man said, little dog Turpy barks so that I cannot sleep nor slumber. And if I live till morning, I will cut off one of his legs. So in the morning, the old man cut off one of the little dog's legs. So I'm going to skip a bit because um, there's a lot of this. He gets all the other legs taken off. Mm. And eventually... We see in the morning, I'm going to cut off a little dog Turpy's head because he barks too much, right? And the next night, the Hubias came again saying, Hubia, 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 tear down the hemstocks, eat up the old man and woman, and carry off the little girl. And when the Hubias found that little dog Turpy's head was off, they tore down the hemstocks, ate up the man and woman, and carried off the little girl in a bag. And I'm going to leave it there because there is actually more context to the story. Um, but it is horrifying because in Celia, that's actually where it ends um, in the in the story itself, uh, the very beginning of the film. But great little uh, little tale that came over from the UK, actually. Yes. Um, 
traveled over. And uh, yeah, I love the hoopias. Yes, the hoopia is great. And I love the fact that that is what the teacher is reading to her class just before Christmas break. Um, and or summer, as we call it, summer holidays. Um, and that is the story. And Celia is just like, I need this book. This book is amazing. And um, I related to, to little Celia right then. It's like, your teacher's just reading something horrifying. All the kids are like going, what the hell's that? And I'm just like, can I have the book, please? Um, and the fact that she gets it is kind of amazing. Now, Celia is a, a treasure of a movie. Um, it is uh, incredible. It is about, it is a kind of, in some ways, a very typical movie about the kind of the summer and kind of a six month period where um, Celia comes of age. Like she kind of starts realizing a little bit, a bit about the world around her. It's set in 1950s London. Oh no, sorry, Melbourne. Sorry, why didn't I say London? 1950s <laughs> Melbourne, um, where you have the Red Scare, you have um, the beginnings of feminism. You have, as we're going to go into the 60s, when first wave feminism really started ramping up, you have um, this kind of very specific noticing what Australians call mate cult, mateship culture, which can get very um, toxic. Um, and you have her kind of realizing these political divides, these kind of sexual divides, um, things are not all, things are always happening under the surface. And Celia goes through a change. And um, I was not expecting that ending. This is, and I was not expecting what that ending would do to the rest of the movie. We won't get there yet, but there will be, uh, I can't, no, there will be spoilers because we kind of need to talk about it. Yes, I was a bit of a pain and mentioned what happened in Claire Cut. That's shocking. This one, I think because the ending does change the context of the movie as a whole and how you think of it, I think it does need to be discussed in terms of what happens. Um, again, Celia turning into a bit of a terrorist, but it's, it is an amazing coming of age movie that does so much and it is uh, such a beautiful it's a terrifying movie but it's so beautiful in a lot of ways um did you need a hug after that movie <laughs> after this movie um after watching it twice right yeah <laughs> <laughs> I hug twice. uh yeah absolutely i mean i mean from the opening get-go in the story you know celia is you know wake trying to wake up her grandma like she normally does every day mm. and realizes that she finds that she has passed away in uh, her bed mm. and that's how it, that's, it sets up a lot of how this 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 movie's gonna you know uh, this this continuation of this little traumas uh, over and over and over again in Celia's life um, going on with that background like you were saying with the red scare and and feminism as well and um, just this idea of, of all these things that are completely outside of her control because she's a little kid right yes. that she's got to have to deal with and it's it's so interesting because um how she's how is she processing this because she was already a weird kid to begin with because she, she likes is. this Hoobie story mm -hmm. right uh and her grandma was her best friend so she lost that latched onto the hoobias uh you know very early on she's like i'm imagining the hoobias are actually real and coming to try to get me but luckily i have little ways to get uh, made them away from me mm. um and yeah, I just think it's a uh, it's a it's a great little um, a story that um, has a lot of things going for it. That, uh, like you said, I, I needed a hug afterwards because it eventually leads to some pretty scary things uh, that um, are never necessarily resolved. No, right? 
nothing is resolved. That. Nothing is resolved in this movie at all, which is such a genius move. Yeah, and I think that's maybe where the through line with Clearcut is because I mean, both of these films don't really have a resolution necessarily. Mm. Um, it's just is just tragedies and things kind of piling up, and our characters dealing with it. But in this case, it's a little girl. Um, played by Rebecca Smart, who um, plays Celia, who is nine years old in this, but she was 12 when she filmed this, mm. Rebecca was. Um, and I, I, I know I want to take a quick detour and talk about Ann Turner, which is really fantastic that she wrote this film and directed it mm. and produced it, but I guess she wrote it uh, five years prior to filming this. She wrote the script for 19, in 1984. She, mm. she had done this. Uh, and was looking for uh, a way to eventually make it, obviously get the finances and stuff. And it was actually inspired by a newspaper article uh, in the Bolt of uh, Victoria in the 1950s rabbit, uh, you know, muster that was going on. So it's weird to have all these this political context of the Red Scare, the rabbit muster, um, you know, coming of age story as well. And that, you know, that those, those waves of feminism mixed in with all these different things um, and channel it through the, the, the lens of a little girl doing kind of terrifying things <laughs> because, she, because she's she's pretending these things are existing but anyway i don't want to go too deep into that but no the the rabbit stuff is interesting after i watched it i kept going to people who i knew grew up in melbourne going did you know about the whole rabbit mustard they banned rabbits and they just go oh did they oh that makes sense it was not even like a um a surprise it was just like a oh yeah no that that does make sense because Growing in, in New Zealand, we had the same thing with maximatosis, which is a virus that you give rabbits. In fact, in New Zealand, um, we tried to uh, chemical bomb them until uh, people went, mm, maybe we shouldn't be using chemicals. <laughs> um, could be bad. Um, maybe. Yeah, maybe not a great idea. Um, because in Australia and New Zealand, rabbits, probably in America as well, but there's a very special affinity that we have for them as pests um i love seeing a rabbit darting around a forest uh, a field i think it's it's amazing um but in uh in but they can't farmers hate them with a blind passion there's even a very dopey um ad for telstra which is a phone company the phone company in australia and it's all about how internet is going to improve your life and this kid's going dad um, why did they build the Great Wall of China? And all the dad can say is to keep rabbits, to keep the rabbits out, which <laughs> kind of, um, don't know, it's, again, I was just thinking of anything rabbit related when I was watching this movie, because this is all about rabbits. This is, they are going to see um, news footage of farmers yeah. hunting down masses of, because we had a lot of rabbits. There was a lot of rabbits. Rabbits, when they were introduced to Australia, flourished like they loved it same with new zealand um a lot of animals that were introduced to by colonizers just flourished and all of a sudden they were everywhere like um uh possums and deer are considered pests in australia in new zealand sorry australia they're protected and a native animal in new zealand they see a possum they'll kill it like it's it's a very kind of weird thing of how certain animals depending if they're considered uh native um, are considered pests and need to be kind of the native need to be protected except if they're human beings then it seems like it doesn't matter which this kind of movie alludes to you never see it but there's kind of that distinction um actually rabbits have multiple meanings in this movie it's um Cassili is a little witch in training um that's the kind of thing I loved about this it how so I'm gonna be all over the place with this movie uh, it's got so much going on 
Um, But there's a way that this movie equates feminism and witchcraft in a way that I loved. I, yeah, Celia is doing all these kinds of things that start off small, that are just mischievous, and then kind of ramp up to something very much more deadly um, and, and horrifying. But she very much equates, but there is an equation between um, feminism and witchcraft, the power of that feminine kind of thing that's often equated with witchcraft, and the fact that the rabbit turns into a familiar, because this kid loves rabbits. This That's like, all I she want wants. I yeah. want a pet rabbit. There's no law that's going to stop me getting this rabbit. I do not care if the law says I cannot have a rabbit. I will have a rabbit, and I am going to fight tooth and nail um, to get this rabbit. And when I have the rabbit, it's going everywhere I go. She is this. Yeah, she's twelve, but she's tiny. Like Rebecca Smart does an amazing performance. I mean, um, you know she's weird. You know she's off, but at the same time, she's so endearing, and she catches that without being annoying, which is. This movie would not work if if you didn't have Rebecca. Um, but the fact that she's carrying this enormous rabbit everywhere she goes, I felt sorry for the rabbit. I'm just like, oh, put the rabbit down. I mean, that rabbit does not look comfortable. You're being held by the skinny child. <laughs> and, and people are throwing rocks. Kids are throwing rocks at each other. That yeah. rabbit's got to get out of there. It really? And then the rabbit gets, you know, literally gets a hot cross bun on it, which is another great thing. Um, the, the, the illusion. Um, that's not even around Easter. And I'm like going, God, that poor rabbit, just <laughs> let it go. Just, just keep it in the backyard. That's where it needs to be. Even the father's, who's in, we'll get into the father, um, is using it for nefarious purposes, which again, rabbit is fertility. I mean, every kind of symbolism the rabbit has is in this movie and it's done so well. Like I just realized the fertility one, um, and the sex, um, um, just now. So this is this is this kind of movie. There are so many layers. <laughs> and the population of, I mean, we, we mentioned it before, but like in the Red Scare, of course, yes. right? And this idea of breeding um, and this idea of this, I, well, the idea of communism spreading yes. during the time uh, and into your neighbors, right? Your mm. neighbors might be communists, right? And some of them were actually. Yes. Uh, and not necessarily, um, you know, uh, we don't want to get into like too many details, but like not necessarily ones that are like super political and want to change everything, even though there were meetings in this movie. No, um, yeah. How to deal with uh, certain things. But it is interesting to, to see that, uh, you know, uh, the adults in this movie were also uh, fighting uh, these these ideas and like really just kind of manipulating like with the rabbit we were saying mm. uh the way that uh they interacted um with the kids themselves but also like uh you know their own issues that um you know they're fighting for uh, in you know the the socio-political context right um it's it's just um it's just a really crazy look at um how a little girl is dealing with all of these things that are completely almost like you know i mean obviously where it leads to the the part in the film where that reality and that uh, that fantasy kind of comes to a head and a death right mm. um that is the catalyst for like hey like stop pretending you know this this is this is a real thing that we're dealing with and you know she just retreats back into that 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 fantasy that 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 um that almost like that initiation, like you were saying with, mm. with things, um, into where she's like, you know what, I'm going to just double down on this because this is where I feel comfortable because 
honestly, like even I know I'm going all over the place too. Mm. Um, where um, you know when his when her grandmother passed away at the very beginning, I feel like that was that was the catalyst for her to be like, I don't know what to do, so I need to, you know, escape. And getting this rabbit is actually very helpful for me uh, to kind of say, like, hey, I have something that cares about me. I care about it. I can take care of it. Um, yeah. So anyway. Uh. No, you're right. It is the sort of the catalyst because this is a, a very sort of uh, typical for 1950s family that isn't going to talk about anything messy. Um, the fact that she gets told off for going into the granny flat, which is this little house in the back that you would store your elderly parents so you could take care of them, but yet they have their independence, um, a thing. And the fact that she kind of breaks, has to, they lock it up straight away. And the fact that she has to break into it and gets in trouble for spending time in that room, which is a place that she spent, probably spent a lot of time. Like this movie doesn't give you much context clues um about the relationship about the, her the grandmother's relationship with the family but through the movie you can tell she probably was a bit of a force of nature especially in how her son um celia's father reacts and the fact that at the beginning her mother is kind of checked out it's halfway through the movie where uh marianne fahey i think again another great australian comedian giving a really nice dramatic performance um it takes um it takes half the movie for her to actually become a presence in the movie. And when she does, it's kind of incredible because she becomes the mother. Like, I don't know. I just sort of got the feeling that her grandmother was such a force of nature that she was almost her best friend and her maybe her primary caregiver in a way because she kind of just took over the house. Yeah, but that's I sense me. The same. I, I yeah. sense the same thing. Yeah. Because mm. yeah, um, after she dies, uh, when the father realizes there are communists next door the thing he does is that he burns his grandmother's books because she was a feminist and sounds like a very very strong woman so he wants to burn all this kind of um probably very leftist literature that she read and that was celia's source of books like there's no books in the house there's books in the granny flat and yeah it's always just these little clues and how people react um to that flat to that space and everything like that where you get the sense of oh okay i think i know what was happening in in that family before she passed away yeah no and I, I totally get that too i mean even with the conversations with you know that uh, adultery that's happening mm. like everything in this you know society in the 1950s not just uh, in the united states at least that's a context that i know mm. uh, also over in australia you know this is a lot of closed door uh, things going on that, um, you know, are hush-hush, we don't talk about it, um, and the kids are unwillingly around it, and so, you know, uh, we have, you know, our grandmother, right, as somebody who is more open to be progressive, you can tell through the the literature and everything mm. like that, but then the response to that is, like, that change is the son's, like, I'm gonna burn these books, and so mm -hmm. I'm, I need, and then Celia's, like, well, I need to go hang out with them, because they seem to be more playful more like my grandmother um and uh, they seem like cool and also he i mean we she she gets a new mother more or less she does um, and um and that's kind of where a lot of things kind of shift over so it is really interesting to kind of see that closed door uh stuff um that we can almost we have to interpret it and uh, because it's not uh it's not clear cut 
No, it's not. This movie, clear cut was clear cut. Celia, not clear cut. Um, yeah, this movie is all themes and little kind of nuances and kind of character performances, which is really great. Some of it's very thing when um, Celia's father is really trying to hit on um, uh, uh, the neighbor, El Turner, Mrs. Turner. And you don't know whether if they had a dalliance beforehand and then she kind of says no or whether he was just trying, constantly just flirting with her and then you can tell when she kind of had enough and starts really pushing him away or was always just trying to push him away. It's never, um, it's never, again, clear cut. What is happening with that relationship? You only get the tail end and that's maybe when um, uh, Celia is noticing it really sort of going oh dad's spending a lot of time over at the neighbor's house but that's fine because i want to spend time at the neighbor's house um i like these kids this is fun um and mrs turner is much more of an affectionate mother than my mother is um at, at this particular time and so she doesn't really notice it until it turns obviously very ugly when he's literally trying to blackmail her into having a relationship most likely a sexual relationship with him and it's um yeah all the sort of revelations come from the kids which i think is a really nice way of doing it yeah i mean that's that's i think that's the key to this film in general is we're seeing a lot of these things through the eyes of the kids and it almost feels uh, i mean i know this would um come around the same time but uh you know like stand by me right um think of something like that where that could be another trailer that could work for this right oh absolutely uh, but where the kids are dealing with the harsh realities um, of the, the real world um, and the, the lives that they actually, you know, encounter and uh, the families that they're a part of. But they're also like, hey, we got to do this play. And that's another thing, too, that, uh, you know, this set really kind of covers is this it's it folklore is also children's play. Right. Because that imagination, that 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 um, openness to you know, almost like we don't, we have that tabula rosa kind of blank slate going on with us, right? Uh, as, as kids, because we're molding, we're shaping mm. up to do different things, but we've been exposed to different things, right? Like the hope, the hubias, right? Mm. Where we start imagining those very things in our own reality. Uh, and um, obviously uh, Celia takes it uh, steps further and further oh, yeah. uh, than most of us do. All right. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I just think it's, um, you know, one of those films that, like we were saying, just doesn't really necessarily have answers, but I don't think it's trying to give us answers. It's trying to show you, like, this is how this, this is the trauma that Celia is going through, and this is how she's dealt with it, and uh, it's the surrogates are the are the children themselves, um, you know, enacting this violence, because even, even in the rock throwing, like, brings back memories of when I was young, and uh, I, I lived, uh, I was one of the first houses in the suburbs that I lived in growing up, and I just remember with neighborhood kids uh, that I did, we didn't like, we would have rock fights. Like, a, like we really actually had rock fights. And I'm like, like, I don't know if that, it probably still happens to some degree as a kid growing up now, mm. but mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like the things that we are around um, might, you know, come out in a way that we, we can't imagine as kids. And yeah. So anyway, no, no, it's weird. It does capture that thing of when you're a kid and I lived in a suburb that had kind of like, we'd call it a gully, but it was kind of like this big kind of area that Celia has. We've got the Creek and the kind of the trees and all that kind of thing. And you'd go exploring in that. I never had a quarry um, like that, but 
um, I definitely had that kind of um, foresty kind of part behind where we lived um, that wasn't developed yet. And yeah, you just disappear for hours and just go do things. And then as long as you came back by a certain time, everything was fine. Um, I know my nieces and nephews never had that kind of thing and I'm kind of glad they did it because I'm just like, oh right. my God, the things, <laughs> yeah, the rock fights and everything else. I'm like, no, we don't need to be doing kids. To... Maybe not to that extent. Um, but it does sort of capture that kind of freedom of just disappearing with, with your, with your friends and causing all kinds of things. But there's this, you're right, the beautiful way of children kind of play acting and you do see it in a lot of folk horror going back to, um, the blood of the devil's claw, which is literally about kids play acting something, but becoming more and more demonic. And before you know it, there's actual murder, ritualistic murder involved. And even in something like the wicker man, which is the whole town getting on on this thing, but the kids are really getting into it and playing with the idea of the hair and this supposedly missing girl and all this kind of thing. Um, and you see it very it's in the very spine of what Celia is doing. Um, because she probably learned some things from her grandmother before she passed away. She knows what a, um, uh, I don't know the exact term. I think it's, I normally know it as a voodoo doll, which I don't think is the correct term, but a doll that you, right. you can have as a surrogate to actually hurt someone, put pins in them and which even I remember doing as a kid, this was a very kind of thing you would do. It's like, it gets a kid you don't like, it didn't do anything, but it made you feel better, um, with a group of other, of other kids or the fact that they're play acting yeah the fact that they're play acting um different scenarios in the quarry and then it actually turns into violence very quickly with the other group of kids they don't like um and then because she's imagining these hobbyers and i was even i was kind of reading the wikipedia thing and it actually that distinction says oh no she's losing her mind there's an actual thing that she thinks it's a reality and or she's having hallucinations and i don't know if she exactly is i think it's more of an imaginary thing but then she turns it very real uh, especially what she does in the end and learns nothing from it because that final shot of the movie is horrifying um and i don't know if sigley is going to be okay um i think she thinks what happened was part of her imagination that she didn't do what she did um even though it is a massive stand for feminism and a real kind of blow against um, the patriarchy, which this movie is all about as well. But at the same time, it's like, okay, I'm walking around it. I need to get into this ending. Um, her uncle is the town constable. He is kind of the local policeman for this kind of area. And he's the one that is enforcing... Yes, he is enforcing the rabbit law uh, that you can't have a pet rabbit. Um, and because her adored Murgatroyd, which is a fantastic rabbit name, does not survive the um, encampment at the Melbourne Zoo, um, she essentially kills her uncle. And so it begins with the death of a family member and ends with the death of, of a family member. But she's gotten herself into such a state where she doesn't understand what she's doing, even though she grabs her father's shotgun and it's still loaded. And it's a horrifying moment. Cause you went, Oh, you just took this reel and it changes everything you've seen beforehand. It's not exactly a twist, 
but it makes you think diff very differently of everything that's kind of happened beforehand and changes it in this most amazing way. I can't wait to watch it again, knowing the ending. How was watching the movie a second time, especially when you know where it's going? How did that change the movie for you? Um, I, I will say uh, that that first time viewing it is definitely the more impactful one, of course, like with most movies. Yeah. But with the second, second go around, uh, it was interesting because I, I do remember uh, shortly after uh, the, the uncle getting shot is, in my opinion, the, the most terrifying moment in the entire film is uh, the children pretending to have this guilt. And so they have a hanging and yes. that that part is the one that like shook me the first time I watched it and uh, in the quarry um, and more or less, you know, just continuing this play, uh, thinking this is this is all imaginary. It's like, mm. oh, yeah, well, we need to we need to find somebody who who did this. Right. So, hey, hey, about how about my friend who's always just, you know, pretty much the yes, yes person. Uh, everyone. Mm. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put them in here, and they're we're gonna you know metaphorically hang them, and it's actually a very scary scene, right? Um, and then the film the film kind of just ends on that you know that coming out of the quarry itself. But uh, yeah, just watching it the second go around, uh, knowing that obviously the Hubias were all in her head mm. more so. Um, uh, it it definitely uh, added you know it's like watching clear cut again, where it's like, it's like you already kind of know about. Uh, Arthur, right? And it's like, it's like you already know about the Hubias mm. being, a fig, uh, you know, some uh, some kind of figment of her own reality, right? And knowing that, uh, it made it very interesting to be like, it's like, okay, wh uh, where are these moments, and like, what are these catalysts for these moments to where she's getting to that spot, right? And yeah. like, what would cause her to be like, all right, tonight I'm gonna dream that a Hubia is gonna come and try to get me. Mm. And that's what I, I noticed more the second go around. Oh, interesting. Cause I almost kept forgetting about the Hubias and why they were so important because you get just so engrossed in the rest of the story about everything that's sort of happening. And then when they come back, you're like, oh yeah, those guys. But um, they sort of seem to come up, if I remember correctly, when she feels like she's in a sense of danger almost like especially when um they're locked in the shed in the quarry and they've got murgatroyd and they're torturing the bunny that's when she sort of sees them or when she's alone in the garden just after her grandmother's death i know they sort of she imagines them at certain points of when she's stressed almost um and that's sort of interesting so when yeah and in that final scene of them playing out the because uh, i thought she was going to kill that girl i'm like oh no it's gonna happen again because because this is the only because this is the other girl who knows what's happened because she's in the house because they've kind of dressed up in this kind of weird like rambo dress up kind of thing where they're wearing all these amazing like girly outfits and they've got like lipstick all over their face like they're going into battle um and she knows she was fully aware of what's happened so i'm like oh no celia's taking out all the witnesses um but she doesn't it's still that kind of play again this really weird ritual child play kind of thing that she's going back to but at the same time i'm like i don't know if she'll be completely okay because i don't think she completely understands that she killed her uncle um she knows that he's died but because she doesn't understand death in that very primal way that you kind of understand it when you're a kid, as in your grandparent isn't coming back. She, I don't think, I think she gets it, but she doesn't understand that she was actually actively involved in the murder. 
um, to the right. point where she actually pulled the trigger. So it's it's a weird kind of thing you have to sort of deal with, and it sort of changes again everything you see beforehand of her doing these little ritual games that kind of um, amp up everything she's doing and these little traumas that keep happening, like with her neighbor, her father, um, right. and that it's her mother that protects her. Like she does not say she sees the kickback bruise on her chest. She's like, she dog, finds that, the dog that yeah. Celia. She does not like that dog. She is no. This I is was not a rabbit. Bad for that dog. I, I was know. like, don't, don't, but don't tie this dog to the tree. That's me. <laughs> no, it's a puppy. Yes, I understand. It comes from the person you don't like, but I realize it's not a rabbit. But you need to take care of your dog, okay? I mean, look at that face. Um, and yeah, because everything it's if it's represented with the world of of the patriarchy she doesn't want anything to do with it and her mother finds the dog and her mother goes okay but i need to protect my child um because she kind of understands i don't think she understood but the fact that she won't understand i think is going to lead to more violence and it's a movie where i'd love a sequel but hate it at the same time because i love the fact that it's not going to be explored but at the same time I want an exploration of what this child, what who this child is going to turn into, um, because I don't think it's going to be good. <laughs> no, and and same with her best friend. Like I, I think she's going to be traumatized. Yes, just like her, you know, and uh, just because she knows what's going on, but is I mean, it's interesting that she barely says a, a word the entire movie. Yeah, um, she's she's constantly watching. I mean, she's the one who gives the book a hobby to um, Celia in the first place after the teacher says. No, that's I've given it. It's not. I promised it to her, and then she just gives it to. I'm like, oh, okay, that's something I would do as a kid because I want the person to like me. So I go, okay, you can have the book. Um, and then you just see her watching everything. She's never. She's on the other kids' team or other kids' side, but you can tell she's always has sympathy for Celia. Um, and once the Turner kids leave, she's back with her. I think her name's Hannah. Um, yeah, Hannah's such a fascinating character. She barely has a line. But that kid witnessed a murder and is still actively friends with Celia. And I'm just like, oh, she, she, mm, mm, so, oh, Hannah, run. <laughs> and I love Celia. I love the character. I want to hug her. She is such an amazing kid. She is precocious. She is um, naughty. She is big hearted. Um, I mean, when she's. I mean, it may only last for five minutes, but when she's your friend, she's your friend. Again, five minutes later, she may want to kill you, but that's not here or there, um, which is a very kid thing to do. It, um, it captures that, it really captures this element of childhood I haven't seen in a movie for a while. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it so powerful. And one of like the standouts of this set is because I think in general, um these are these are rare movies because i feel like we're so used to the disney-fied versions of of things which is i mean are totally credible as well like obviously mm. i love my disney movies don't get me wrong um but at the same time you know there's there's movies where i mean not everyone had uh, a childhood where you know things were were good mom and dad were there mm. or um you know things went well and you know you're able to go hang out with friends there's all sorts of, uh, of children who uh, are growing up in different circumstances just based on socio-political things going on, um, you know, and uh, some things that are completely out of their control, right? And to see it kind of 
in a film like this, especially watching it as an adult, of course, right? Um, I think it almost like brings you back to that time period. Yeah. And obviously I didn't have the same experiences as Celia, thank God. Mm. Um, but, you know, thinking about that, that like that play element of it's like, oh, this is actually like if this continued, uh, this is where this could have led to. Right. Mm. Or um, just thinking about um, that time uh, in a more, I mean, I, we mentioned it earlier, but like Watership Down, right? Yeah. Thinking about like, well, not everything in childhood was um, was like you know Disney, right? Right. Some of it was a little terrifying, and yes. that those are very memorable moments, right? And it's the same thing with 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 what Celia is going through. Is like all of those moments in this film uh, that like kind of traumatized her, like are going to li- be with her the rest of her life. Mm. And I th- I think that's what makes it so impactful. It really does. Um, It does capture this kind of very specific feeling you have as a child of not being in control. And I think everything Celia is trying to do is trying to get some control back. Like her mother has probably been checked out for quite a while, is coming back. And I really love the second half when she's really in the movie. And you can tell that she's like, right, I'm a mother. I'm not letting my husband off the hook. I'm guessing this is not the first time this has happened. Um... I'm not going to forgive you. I've probably forgiven you way too easily in the past, and this time is just enough. I mean, my kid was involved in this. Um, I'm not... I, I see my kids in pain, and I see this as her wanting a pet rabbit. I don't understand why you have to make my child sad after everything else she's been going through. I mean, she even says, look, her grandmother just died. You cannot take away this rabbit. That is kind of her grandmother's surrogate in a way. Um, she And she's sort of the one that understands everything that is happening. And it's kind of, again, that female kind of power. And But Celia just does not have control over everything because she's a child and her parents are meant to do that. And for quite a bit of the movie, they're not. They are selfish. They are checked out. They don't want to talk about certain issues other than burning books which is not solving anything it's just exacerbating it she's losing friends she's losing mother surrogates all over the place and her only part of control is these ritualistic games that she's playing and they just ramp up and ramp up and ramp up um to the point where all her fury and all her rage is just centered on one person and it's so sad and so horrifying at the same time because if people had made certain different choices throughout the movie, it wouldn't have gotten to that bad. Or if there was a conversation, because um, I even remember when my I had two grandparents died, died very close to each other. And I remember having my mother after the second one went, okay, I actually probably need to have a conversation with my very young child who's not probably, this is her learning about death and this is a conversation we need to have and it was very awkward and I didn't like it but it was a thing that needed to happen. I'm kind of glad my mother, who doesn't like talking about things, or didn't then, um, actually had a conversation and Celia never gets that at all um, and you feel so bad for her. You want to give her a hug <laughs> tell her, yes, everything's going to be okay yeah. you do not need to shoot the policeman <laughs> Although he does look a little bit like a hubia. He does. He does. He does look a little bit like a hubia. So uh, Celia was just, yes, Celia was just defending her house. (laughs) I mean, it's it's all right there. I mean, I take it, I took it very literally, right? Mm. Mm. (laughs) Um, Now I will say 
another thing we didn't mention, but with the Hubias, I really love the makeup and the design. So good. So, yeah. I know it's like that is like the creature design of that is like it is so cool looking, but also like it like it's drippy and it's gross and like um like I mean it's me reading that story, butch I butchered it, but uh that that's a scary story, right? It Especially is. to the kid. And so of course they had to make it into some kind of scary terrifying looking monster and i think they do a really great job of it too no they do it's kind of like they're going that really kind of practical gooey effects you used to get in the 80s of creatures which i love so much and when you see a sort of a face it looks yeah it looks like it's not finished yet like they've kind of just taken it out of the workshop and it's still drying but that gives it this amazing it's not that it's probably very finished and very kind of thing but it gives this very um you can believe it's more of an imaginary creation than it is a but at the same time very real like i love when you see you always see the hands like each finger clawing over the windowsill when it's like wanting to get in um it's it's an amazing effect yeah so yeah this is a this is a movie i mean both of these movies both clearcut and celia are are movies that i think really do stand out in this set and i i, I was really happy that we were able to talk about both of these movies but do you have anything else i guess with celia no i think i'd just probably talk about rabbits more and witchcraft um i think this is a very witchy movie and that's one of the reasons why i i love it um but no i just sort of love the fact that um celia is much more is such a feminist text of a movie where there's clear cut is much more of a masculine text it's i didn't realize it when we picked it that that would be kind of the the two things with the movie but they are very much looking at masculine power and then celia is very much looking at feminine power and how it is very much um compared to um witchcraft and communism um and how when you're looking at female power, it's all about the idea and the ritual, um, where there's the masculine's all about control. Even when they're having the meeting in the house, the men are all interested in doing the USSR mode of communism, which is not a great way. <laughs> it's like, it's, that is just, that is just control. Cool, yeah, it is just control, um, as we're seeing today. Um, where there's, she's about the principles, like, um, unions uh wages um as australians would say having a fair go it's not about the control it's more about this kind of community which again you get that sense of what her grandmother was and how her mother comes into it again and where there's claire cut is these three men in the woods of these very distinct three um masculine ideals um and ron lee just having to learn how in a weird way to be a violent male um, and the, but the consequences of that, especially when you are going against the system, um, in the, even though he's not, cause he's trying to kill, um, Graham Greene. So it's, um, yeah, these, the, the really interesting kind of counterpoints to looking at very distinctive, different kinds of, um, gender roles and how they kind of played and how they fit into political kind of structures and all that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it was when I was watching them close together, it was like, Oh, this is such a good double. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, now that you like brought that up, and I hadn't really thought much about the the, the male side of things with clear cut mm. necessarily, and, and and honestly, it's it's all right there, of course. Mm. And I'm gonna with the pun for the third time, right? Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I just think it's it's incredible to think of the different dynamics of. I mean, even in in clear cut, it's 
like it's more of a capitalistic movie right or like, yes but i mean obviously going against it of course you know because mm. we're you know trying to you know going back uh to a, a more i guess ritualistic mm. uh communal kind of understanding of how we interact with the land right mm. but yeah just you know we were saying these three these three guys in the woods dealing with the uh, you know their their power or i guess lack thereof and I, I guess that's i suppose that is also the same thing with celia is like we have power dynamics but we also have the ability of like how powerless everyone is yes right and and how we are, are trying to get at some of these these issues that are like so much bigger than the individual of course but you know obviously as individuals ourselves we have to find ourselves like that's why these stories are so compelling is because we can almost put ourselves in the shoes of these different characters and i think um you know kind of see it through those lens and those different terms and i think that's what makes it so impactful for all of us and that's the reason why we watch these movies right yeah even celia's dad who's constantly trying to get power over the people like he's blackmailing his neighbor for a sexual relationship he's trying to control his house he's trying to take control of the house after his mother died and every single time he fails like even in the second half of the movie when he when he feels he should be more in charge it's his wife who comes and kind of goes ah nah sweetie you're a dick come on just and he's pushed to the background and he's having to deal with double grief within this movie and it's kind of fascinating in that respect as well even though that's all in the background like that's not even the the main aspect of what this movie's trying to do and clear cut does the same thing i mean yeah watching these movies side by side was such and the fact that they're both in countries colonial countries um and dealing with that in a very very different way um there are movies that much very much deal with the we've got a lot of movies really great movies in australia that deal with more the indigenous side but this is a movie of dealing of of a a more of a female point of view of it and clear-cut is much more clear-cut than what it's trying to do but it's yeah they're so such good movies and i love sets like this that sort of bring these movies back to hopefully a second life um because both these movies deserve to be watched and more talked about and Claire Cut, I have definitely seen people going, this is amazing, but no one's talking about Celia yet. And I hope the older the set gets, the more people go to Celia and go, holy hell, that is a movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's that's the thing about, I, I noticed with a lot of the special features that I, I had watched with these movies, but also just going back and thinking about previous releases or some of them, you know, not even being released physically. Mm. Yeah. Right? I, I don't know. I think it's either the Dreaming or Kadaicha, which mm. is I, I barely like a, the print is like they had to really, really go for it and try to find it um, because that was the only surviving print that existed. Yeah. Uh, and so these are all these movies are, are getting a second chance because I mean, some of them like Eyes of Fire have a cult following. Right. Mm. And um, a field in England, a lot of people because of recency mm. uh, have seen something like this. Um, but a lot of these movies are unknown to a lot of people. And I think this is a perfect way uh, to dive into this huge and, and broad brushstroke that is folk horror uh, from all these different areas of the world. And I, I would love a second set of this and I would love um, to see, you know, like maybe even more Eastern perspectives, right. Or yes. uh, just things that are maybe even like um, Southern. And when I say that, mm. I mean like, you know, South America, African, mm. and the, the oh. different areas yes. would be very interesting to kind of see 
uh, you know, the different types of folk horrors uh, that came from, you know, these regions. Mm. And I know in the, uh, the documentary, I know they even have a section talking about uh, South America and Central America and talking a little bit about Brazil, I think, uh, in some of the horror movies in there. And there's even a special feature uh, that didn't make the final cut, actually, mm. of the documentary, but it's in it's in there as like a seven minute clip. Um, but it's interesting because it's like this is this is there's so much more to talk about. Right. And we just we're just seeing it mostly from the lens of our Western person, like our Western eyes. And we still probably um, this I mean, this this whole idea of folklore might even be a Western coin thing. Right. Um, it is because it the way the documentary frames it, it started in England. And the interesting thing is because England had such a massive empire and colonized a large swath of the, of the globe is that it probably brought those kind of things to it. But then other countries, I mean, there's a, I can't remember who made it when it was made. It's the last couple of years. It's an amazing, I can't even remember where in Africa. It's called, I am not a witch. I think it's Uganda. Um, I could be wrong about that. I need to think, but it's about this woman who's um, ostracized from her community because they think she's a witch and witchcraft is not solely a Western ideal. Um, and yeah, more movies from South America. I know Indicator just put out two 1930s horror movies, The Phantom of the Monastery and La Leon. I got those, I yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, oh my God, I was, we need, I would like more releases like that. And Severin, uh, cat, Japanese cat horror movies, please. If you could just put a couple uh -huh. in your next set, it'd be great. Um, but yeah, every country has their own kind of mythologies, their own kind of earthy kind of beginnings, how they sort of see female magic, how they kind of see the earth and everything like that. And to see it through a folk horror prism, I think is really interesting. So yes, I am all for a second set of, of Severin. Um, I would spend another 150, 70, how much, nearly $200 yeah. on it just to get, <laughs> yes, to get these movies I have never been able to experience um and watching them it kind of brings film history a, a new level it brings light to a very kind of movies i would never have seen and um i love it i love it so much yeah couldn't recommend it enough go buy it yeah clink in this link in the description yes. down below. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah it's it i i couldn't i i mean like i was saying at the beginning um i just remember vividly where i was when i discovered like you know this this, this uh, dropped the pre-order, right? And I, I was yeah. with my friend and having seen the whole entire thing now, having watched that trailer, having reading all the supplemental features, it's just been such a treat. I mean, obviously I started back in January and here we are in, in late March. I, I'm sure this is going to be, you know, coming out later, mm. but um, man, I mean, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still digesting it. There's so much to, to look here. And as we were kind of describing there's still so much to explore and you know i mean even in the documentary alone like write down all those all those movies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no there's so much you want to see afterward and how yeah it is just it's an amazing set um i've still got a few movies in it that i need to see particularly the british ones at the end um because i think there's just a really cool way of um it's just it's my oh god it's one of my favorite things I own in my Blu-ray or my movie collection. Um, I, you know, I remember where I was. I think it's a brilliant marketing. Here's an amazing movie on a uh, documentary on folk horror. Oh, by the way, this is coming. And of course, if you love the documentary, you're like, I want to see more of these movies. 
and the set actually covers movies that are only glanced over. If you watch it, um, Claire Cut only has a brief, not even a mention. It's, they're talking about something else and they'll show something from Claire Cut. I don't even think Celia is even mentioned on this movie. So that was such a surprise just to go, holy crap, this movie. Um, yeah, because the other Australian movies are a little schlocky in the best way, like, but they are definitely made for that horror Australian 80s market, which is a wonderful time in movies, by the way. But Celia really is this coming-of-age, horrific fantasy. It's doing so, so much. Um, thank you so much for coming on and talking about these movies. I've been dying to talk about them for a while, so the fact that I actually got a chance, I... Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> well, I'm glad that... I mean, I, I know that when we were concocting this, we're like, well, which ones do we talk about, right? Yeah, so, yeah it could have gone in a lot of directions. There's, there's, there's 20 films in this box set, one of them being the documentary... But there's, I mean, they're all, they all give you something. Now, obviously not all of them are on the same quality, but I'm glad we picked two of them that are just ones that like we, you know, now that we've discussed it and thought about it and uh, really just kind of explored a lot of the themes, it's like these really are films that I think people should see. Really, yes. Um, the good thing about the set is that there's a lot of schlock and a lot of awe. And we picked two of the awes. Um, but yeah, every movie, even if I didn't love with one as much as the others, I found it interesting. Like there was something I could get from it. Um, and a lot of the same themes do keep coming up, but they're all just so inventive and amazing. And especially watching a lot of the international movies. Um, yeah, it's totally worth all the money you would spend on this. And I know a lot of Australians have been excited because of the four Australian movies, um, just because we have never had a chance to see them. And to actually have them in this form has been an absolute treat and it's been wonderful being able to talk about these um so thank you so much for coming on um before we go please tell people where they can find your good work ah uh, yes uh so i have a youtube channel and it's my name nathan jones mm -hmm. so i'm not the australian wrestler that <laughs> many people may know about um who has been in mad max fury road mm -hmm. and troy mm -hmm. and also a former wwf star but, um, you know, uh, I, I'm there and I talk about uh, physical media mostly and uh, the different topics that come up with that. And, uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a blast on that channel. And then I occasionally will talk on Twitter as well. Uh, I forgot my my uh, my, <laughs> my at symbol because Nathan Jones has already been taken, right? And so Nathan I have added B. Jones or something? I can't, yeah. yeah and 23 is in the number yeah. there too, yeah. So, I'll, anyway. I'll put it in the description. You'll be able to find him. <laughs> YouTube and Twitter. Those are my, my film avenues. So thank you so much for having me on. No, thank you. And I cannot recommend um, your channel enough. Um, I've spent a lot of money because of it. Because um, <laughs> you're a big Indicator fan. And so am I. So I'm like, God damn it. I mean, seriously, do they have to release... Do they have to release that Bogart thing coming up in like June? Oh, I I'm immediately like... got it. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Actually, like, my, that's actually my most retweeted tweet because yeah. I, I, I feel like I broke the news on it because I got, immediately got the um, the notification in my, yeah. out, my, in my Outlook and I shared it and it's got like 200 like likes and retweets is like this is I mean I, I thought somebody at Indicator you know would have done something but yeah, man that Bogart set oh it's gonna be oh I mean Nicholas Ray I can't remember the other direct I mean it is I'm just looking at that set going god damn it I'm I already, yeah, I've purchased it. I'm going to be getting it. But it is just like a, ah, oh, every time you, Indicator's always going to get me. Um, so, yes. 
Um, it's an amazing channel. The way you look at, yes, oh, oh you have all the hammers. Um, it's a great way because you look at everything it does, the special features, the box, how it's presented, the movies themselves. It's, it's a really great channel and I recommend everyone please subscribe because... Again, good work. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Um, this was an absolute joy, as usual. Um, but if you want to find uh, Schlock and Awe, you can at Schlock and Awe one on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and we're on all the apps. If you want to follow me, it's just Reading Geek. I don't think I say this. No, I barely say this, but if, if you want to rate and review, it's there to rate and review. It would be much appreciated. Um, and yeah, we will be back next week with another double feature. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.